Hi, I'm Neil from the RuneQuest Project and welcome to Tales from the Black Alynx, a podcast series where we talk to the authors of the Johnstown Compendium publications. For our first episode, we're talking to the writer responsible for the best-selling campaign Six Seasons in Sata. Uh, hi, who are you and where are you? Hi, uh, my name is Andrew Montgomery. Um, I'm an American, but I've been living in Japan for the last 20 years. Uh, currently, I'm right in Tokyo. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us for the for the inaugural episode. We've got some questions that we fired over to you, so hopefully um, you have a bit of a good chat. So what's your history with RPGs and how did you first encounter RuneQuest Stroke HeroQuest? Yeah, so I started playing uh, RPGs when I was very young. I was about uh, 10 years old, uh, still in elementary school, uh, primary school. And it was actually at school. I had a teacher who uh, had got the old Holmes Dungeons and Dragons box set. And of course, Holmes was a, um, you know, as you know, a child psychologist. And he thought that role-playing games were good for building up imagination and math skills or whatever. So this teacher actually introduced some of us to it in school. So for about two years, I was playing a little bit of, of D&D. And then I went to secondary school. There was actually a, a D&D club there, after-school club. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I joined, and it was all older boys than I. But... They weren't playing Dungeons and Dragons. They were playing this game called RuneQuest. So I was about, what, 13 at the time? Uh, had to be 1983. That's, that was my first introduction to RQ was, was then. It was RQ2, uh, actually. RuneQuest 3 had just come out, but for some reason the boys didn't like it. So <laughs> we were still playing RQ. So that, that was my early history with it, yeah. And what was the the, t- the teacher? What was the teacher's subject? Uh, well, that w- this was primary school, so it was uh, my homeroom teacher. Oh, right. right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but I think uh, she had a background in psychology, and I think that's how she got wind of this. She had read a, an article recommending role-playing. But, of course, it was a matter of a couple of years later um, when the whole uh, Dungeons & Dragons satanic panic started <laughs> in and so the club actually ended up getting shut down but wow yeah 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 it's pretty see, weirdly enough so we didn't really have much of a uh, of the panic in the uk so i come from a similar background again it was a, an after school secondary school um club with role playing uh, and a bit of um bit of board games as well so talisman and um Greg Stafford's game as well, and uh, yeah, it's same kind of deal. That I think you you move on to harder stuff <laughs> in terms of of RuneQuest. You know, a bit more gritty and a bit more more natural. It just it just really yeah. gelled with me. So. so for me, it was just it was just love at first sight. I mean, um, mm. I can't even really explain what it was. I mean, I remember uh, I created a character and I was fighting a, a brew on a bridge, and it just. For some reason, I think you, you just said it felt more natural, but also it just felt um, more like the mythology that I had read when I was a kid, you know, because I had been really in Greek mythology and all of this. And so it felt less like Tolkien to me and more like, you know, Robert Graves or Edith Hamilton or something like that. So mm-hmm. I really, yeah. Yeah, it, it also seemed to, you know, the, the kids that would play and still play D&D seemed to be very much 
you know, I'm all powerful, I do this and it's amazing. Whereas RuneCrest seemed to be a bit more, I try and do this and X, Y, Z happens, you know, and it's and it's the the randomness but exactness of what happens in RuneQuest I really, I kind of really hooked into. And it was, you know, we we uh, we were playing RuneQuest as our main game, but they were also into the other new Chaosium games at the time, Stormbringer and, and Call of Cthulhu. And mm -hmm. Cthulhu, of course, was that perfect example of the sort of anti-D&D, where it's not about being all-powerful, it's about how spectacularly you are destroyed, you know, or, or going <laughs> So So, yeah, it was a very different kind of game experience, I think. And can you remember what that first character was? Uh, my first character in RuneQuest. Mm. Uh, actually, it was a, a brown elf. <laughs> so, oh, wow. So first character was an elf, yeah. I was just, you know, uh, struck by the idea of playing a plant. <laughs> so, yeah. It's a funny one, isn't it? Yeah, mine was actually a baboon, funnily enough. But my but my compatriot was also was an elf in that, around Apple Lane. It was it was excellent. Yes, yeah. No, I mean, it, it definitely stands out in my mind. And I later we played Snake Pipe Hollow. Uh -huh. And I, again, with my elf, I had a sling. It was very David and Goliath. I, you know, just lucked out and got a critical to the giant's head. So it was completely David and Goliath, you know. And I, oh, wow. I, I love that aspect of, of RuneQuest as well, that it did feel kind of quirky and you were never really sure what was going to happen. It was so unpredictable, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned Snake Pipe Hollow. I mean, that leads us on to the next question. So do you have a favorite RuneQuest official publication? Um, official publication? See, that's a hard one, because how do you not say Cults of Prax? How do you not say Cults of Terror? How do you not say Troll Pack? But um, there are just so many amazing ones. But I think in that era, to be like um, the Big Rubble or Prax, I mean, because that was just mm. such box setting you know i think a little later i was quite enamored with some of the the rq3 stuff when they started coming out with it i really loved um michael o'brien's sun county it was really a great book also so so all of them <laughs> don't ask me to pick just one so. okay and then in terms of primary games so you mentioned rq2 did you did you end up going through rq3 and then up through the series until RQG? Played RQ3 long enough to, to, to know that it wasn't my cup of tea. So I actually went back to RQ2 and I was running RQ2 uh, up until the late 90s, really. And then I made the jump from RQ2 to Hero Wars when it first came out. Um, mm -hmm. Ran a campaign in that. In fact, I ran uh, Six Seasons and Sarder in that. Um, I had also run it six seasons in Sarder previously in RQ2. So I converted that over and played it. That, um, or as I tried uh, Hero Quest when it became Hero Quest, the first edition. Mm -hmm. Then I kind of was away from Glorantha for a couple of years. Um, finally came back when Hero Quest Glorantha came out, so the, the newest one, and went back, revived six seasons in Sarder, and was blogging about it. And it was around that time that. RQG came out, and so I jumped into that. So I did miss the Mithras RQ6 uh, stream of mm -hmm. it. I stuck mostly with the Chaosium ones and with the Hero Wars Hero Quest. 
Yep, gotcha. And and how are you finding RQG itself? I mean, do, do you? I love it. I mean, it, it's it is essentially RuneQuest two, which is what I like about it. But you know, uh, Jeff and the team have poured it in fantastic elements from you know like King Arthur Pendragon with the the, the passions and the way that they use runes in this game. Um, there are elements of of Hero Quest brought in with augments and stuff like that. I just love that they've gone back to tying the game into Glorantha. Because, to be honest, that is yeah. what irked me with RQ3, actually. I I was in love with Glorantha, and then the new, you know, RQ3 came out in Fantasy Europe. I'm like, you know, what are these pennies? You know, what, 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 that, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. where, where are my lunars? You know, <laughs> so... Um, he didn't want to play picked. I was not interested in Cormac the Pict. No, um, you know, it just it just didn't it didn't float my boat the same way. I really loved Glorantha, and um, ironically, it happened to me again because I was playing Hero Wars and then Hero Quest, and then as you know, they released a, a generic version of Hero Quest, the second edition, and I was just you know here it was happening again, you know. So finally, when when RuneQuest came back and they were like committed to RuneQuest role-playing in glorantha yeah i was yeah. really really in love with that so i mean the, the setting definitely does make it personally you know that they've got so much a, a wealth of information that they can draw upon and the mm. work that they're doing now especially where we've just seen the a portion of the map that jeff richard published today um and it's very exciting yeah yeah um I chat quite a bit with Jeff. Um, we've become pretty good friends, actually, and um, just stuff that they're working on. <laughs> it just, I mean, mm. it just looks spectacular. So, yeah. Fantastic. So I suppose that leads us on to, uh, you know, mentioned Six Seasons in Sarta, that you've played it for a, a few years and you mentioned in the publication that, you know, it's pushing 10 years that it, um, you've been writing it. Was there anything specific that, you know, made you take the leap into writing for the JC? You know, I mean, it was a sort of a combination of things. I, I was not initially thinking about it, but um, when the Johnstown Compendium opened, um, uh, Michael O'Brien um, mentioned it to me and asked if I was interested in doing anything for it. And I was sort of busy at the time. Um, I didn't really have mm -hmm. time to commit to that kind of project. But the idea was growing in my head. And I had been messaging back and forth with Nick Brook, of course, who wrote A Rough Guide to Glamour. And he was sort of keeping me updated on how that project was coming. And it sort of conversations with him just sort of put it in my head, well, maybe I should give this a try. And of course, um, in real life, I'm a university professor. And we were shut down because of COVID in the beginning, back in mm -hmm. uh, March and April. So I was sitting around the house anyway. So I just figured that was the perfect time to to commit and write the book. And um, the rest is history. So I guess, in a way, I suppose I have to thank the pandemic in a strange way. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe you can give us um, a bit of a synopsis, um, just a summary of the campaign itself. Uh, Six Seasons in Sardar is set really just before the Hero Wars in 1619. And it takes place in a uh, sort of mountain valley uh, near Boldholm. The clan there is a very, very small clan. They're very traditionalist, again, sort of throwback to earlier Orlanthe society. But the 
the twist is that this campaign doesn't promote itself as a, how do I say, real Glorantha. Instead, the idea is that this campaign is based on an epic poem by a poet who lived in the late Third Age. Mm -hmm. So this idea of having this sort of traditional, idyllic, Orlanthi clan, is it a real clan or is it just this author's sort of Norman Rockwell idealism or whatever? <laughs> a picture of Orlanthi life, right? And that gave me the freedom to do a lot of things by having it based on this fictional poem. So in the story, which takes place over six seasons, not surprisingly, set in Sartre, <laughs> and um, <laughs> starts with a group of young people who are coming of age, and they go through the adulthood rites, adulthood initiation rites, um, male and female. And then it sort of follows them over their first year of adulthood. But they are the first generation grown-up or lunar rule. So they're in a sort of different world than their parents were in. And mm -hmm. of course, at the campaign, bad things are going to happen. <laughs> and I probably shouldn't give away much more than that. But Is there, um, there are specific characters that the players play? Or do you roll up your own characters and insert them into the campaign? They, they roll up their own characters. Um, there's this idea that this, there was this mythical poem and, and it had fixed characters. But I wanted the, the players to create their own characters. The NPCs, however, you know, are all there in the village. So, um, sure. you know, they're the constant. But I, I really wanted, uh, I really feel strongly that I'm not a fan of pre-generated characters. Just mm -hmm. because I feel like the player character is the, the player's artistic contribution to the art form and yeah. i i kind of like it when they, they bring what they want to the table and i try to accommodate them so yeah for sure and it's you know it's a fun part of the the whole process of role playing i think is that initial session zero yeah. where you can really take on take on that character I agree completely um um, I was going to say, so obviously you mentioned in the pandemic that you, you started writing. Did you have mm -hmm. a specific process? You know, did you plan things out or did you have it pretty much worked out already? Well, um, I was being a little bit disingenuous there because I am, I have written before, um, but nothing for, for gaming. Uh, I wrote two plays when I was younger um, and, uh, ah. and a couple of novels, actually. So I, I right. do have I do have a sort of background in writing, and I just sort of engaged the process there, which is basically I have a skeleton of the the story in my head, but I don't like to to plot too much. I would rather let the story take me where it takes me. Mm -hmm. That made this a little bit of a new experience for me because in a campaign. You're not necessarily writing a story. You are writing for someone else to hmm. create their story with. Yeah. So the, the goal became to create a, a sort of uh, toy chest with lots of things for game masters to, to play with. So what I would do is write a story, but you want to leave lots of variables in it. And, you know, I put in all of these box text sort of notes to the GM on, well, I don't like this, change it, or take this and do this, or, or whatever. And the process became one really of um, stepping back a little bit and trusting that 
the GM who runs this will will fill in the gaps in his or her own way. So, mm-hmm. so the so the writing obviously was fairly natural to you. Were there any elements of the publication process that you did struggle with? Uh, um, yes. Um, so I got through the the PDF pretty easily. Um, and as anybody who was uh, following uh, me on, on Facebook at that time or in the RuneQuest group uh, or Glorantha group will tell you, because I was very loud about this, in it, the PDF came out, you started having people ask about when is the print coming, right? You know, hmm. sort of like you've released this book and then immediately somebody is going to say, when's, when's the print copy? Because people mistake the Johnstone Compendium for, for Chaosium. With Chaosium, you know that if they release uh, the Pegasus Plateau, there will be a hardcover coming. But this was still early days in the Johnstone Compendium, and there were no hard, fast rules on how that was going to happen. So explored that option, again, with Michael O'Brien, and he put me in touch with, with who I needed to talk to at um, drive-thru, and it got okayed. I have absolutely no experience with layout, with a document for full color print hmm. um, no skill whatsoever and so I contacted a friend in the States who, who does this professionally his name is John Lemaire he started to help me out with it but there's no way that I could have done it without him and it was a nightmare we done everything wrong in producing the PDF uh, the, the indentations were the wrong size for the print book conversion were all off. I had put in shadows. All the shadows needed to be removed. So it actually took longer to produce this for print than it did to actually write the book. Wow. Yeah. And this and, is before the electro, uh, Electrum setting, or had you reached that that level of sales? I had. I had. Re- I had reached it, but it was not a. Uh, it was not a, a prerequisite like it is now. Um, yeah. I had already reached it, but yeah, it wasn't. Um, that wasn't the rule yet. Sure. And it says, you mentioned earlier that you uh, had formed a friendship with Jeff and that Michael O'Brien had helped you with the, the process for the putting together the print. Was there any other input from Chaosium staff? And it sounds like it was a really good process of collaboration with Well, you know, actually, no. I, I didn't share anything uh, with Jeff or, or Michael or anybody, really. You know, again, a lot of it was already out there on the blog. And I know that they had read some of that. So they had a sense of what I was doing. I had a conversation with Michael early on, and he had made it very clear that the GC, the Johnstone Compendium, is, is not, not Chaosium. And they mm-hmm. want the authors to sort of go their own way and do their own things. So I didn't really feel the need to, to check with Chaosium. By using that, the conceit that I did of this being based on a poem, you know, I felt that I could really do whatever I wanted. For example, mm. Clan is, is the 13th clan of the Kalamar tribe. And as we all know, there are only 12 clans in the Kalamar tribe. There aren't 13. Um, yeah. But I wanted to do that. You don't really need to check with Chaosium if you have that kind of, um, uh, what can I say, that framework going where I could just sort of invent things and say, oh, well, I'm not saying it. This author is saying it. You know, that kind of okay. thing. It's a very clever premise. I, I do like the thirteenth clan idea. Um, it kind of it gives you a way to you know to to explain away their their histories essentially. So, 
that was a really cool part of the campaign. A theme crept into the book early on, which I didn't really expect was coming. But again, the way that I write, I sometimes don't know what's going to emerge. But it was, um, the book also expresses sort of my feelings on the concept of canon in general. Mm. And that coming from an academic background, um, used to this idea of people reading ancient scriptures um, and then arguing about accuracy and uh, is this translation more accurate than that one? And, and do we know, did these events actually happen or are they fictional or whatever? And I started to, to look at the project that way as a sort of canon-busting framework, mm-hmm. basically saying everything really is canon. You know, whatever is in your campaign is canon. And sort of allowed me to sort of to, to, to do that, to execute that, you know. It works really well. I think reading through the campaign, it works really, really well. So obviously you're happy with the final product. <laughs> Are there things that you would tweak or you know, is this yeah. your, your top shelf work? Um, ho- hopefully not. I'm hoping the sequel will be top, top <laughs> shelf. But um, learning process, um, and I was only expecting to put out a PDF. Now I know better and... Um, Hopefully it'll go more smoothly if, if we do get to print on the next one. But um, I, I, don't, I don't know things, I suppose, that I... I would, uh, let me rephrase that. I wouldn't change anything about six seasons, but I am changing a lot of stuff in the way that I execute the sequel, I guess. Mm-hmm. So all of the, the changes that I might have made to six seasons, I'm actually making you know, or implementing in, in the sequel instead. So, yeah. It's a, obviously a gold bestseller one of only two on the John Sand compendium at the moment that was uh, something of course you you expected to happen or was it a bit of a surprise you know again when I put out six seasons in Sardar it was pretty early days and no idea what to expect mm. um you know the armies and enemies of, of Dragon Pass it was still at like just silver you know so I was expecting I think it's Electrum now but then when, when Nick came along with a rough guide to glamour and it sailed all the way to gold, you know, then I started to wonder, you know, if it was a possibility. Um, but again, it was so early on, none of us really knew how these were going to sell. And no, I didn't, I never expected to, to sell that many copies. I didn't think that there would be that much interest. So, Yeah, it's very interesting looking at the, on the drive through RPG as a whole. And it seems that the Johnson Companion is doing really well especially within the community section you know it's absolutely smashing it gone through and i've looked at not just other uh, community content titles but even like other publications from chaosium and other companies and yeah sure you have the occasional pdf that comes along and is platinum or adamantine or whatever mm. look around it's it's unusual even for books to make it to gold on on drive through rpg so I think that our compendium is doing a fantastic job and, and everybody's titles are just keep getting more and more impressive. So it's, um, be nervous about the sequel because I have to keep upping. <laughs> you have to improve yourself each time. And, and the response from general RuneQuest fans has been positive. I, I assume yes, that, well, that was, I think the most, I don't know, moving, moving thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I, you know, the reviews, uh, the, the reviews that I had, um, the website, and then some other people had reviewed it. It still gets me to this day. Um, 
yeah, it, it, yeah, I, I'm almost choked up. Yeah, so <laughs> awesome. So, if you had unlimited time and budget, is there a project that you'd like to undertake? There's a lot of projects. I don't have unlimited time or budget, uh, but I'm sort of pouring everything into the sequel right now. Or, or unlimited patience. Yes, well, that that too. I would also like to do something for for Call of Cthulhu for the the Miskatonic uh, repository, which is the you know Call of Cthulhu mm. counterpart to the Johnstown Compendium. So that's a project that I would like to do. I've got a couple actually, uh, sort of outlined or you know ideas for them, but um, dream job, um, nothing specific. You know, I'd love to bring back Chaosium's uh, Nephilim RPG, which I'm a huge fan of. But I, you uh-huh. know, that would that would be a dream project, I suppose. So um, the next question is where we we make friends and potentially enemies. Is there a favorite um, Johnstown Compendium project that you weren't involved with that you would have liked to have been? God, I mean, there it's there are so many of them. Not not ones that I would have been involved with. I I am much more pleased with just sitting back and and reading what everybody is doing you know having it mm. having it come at me as a reader um I think that a guide to glamour uh was brilliant brilliant piece of work and i think that was sort of the um benchmark mm-hmm. yeah uh in the johnstown compendium because once once nick and and his team had done that made almost everything possible it, it showed us what print might look like it showed us yeah. what having actual artists might look like and uh you know martin's uh armies and enemies of dragon pass it amazing and also the the sequel to that uh the men of the west um these are brilliant brilliant projects um and and, and a little book that somebody wrote called legion which i i rather liked but <laughs> I don't know who that author was <laughs> no some 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 chancer Somebody, I, I, somebody came up with it. Which, yeah. You know, again, just the idea of that, of just, I'm just going to do a book of brew. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. that is an idea that I wish I had come up with. You know, and it's sort of like a lot of stuff that I'm seeing in, in, in the compendium that just, just blows my mind. It just shows uh, how passionate and, and, and talented I think the, the RuneQuest, the Glorantha community is, yeah. Agreed. Um, I think it's it's working out really well to be drinks between the main events of the the official publications coming out. Just to have, um, it it's almost like having conversations with fans remotely. You know, you're reading their conversations, you're reading their passion in the books. It's great. Yeah. It's a great idea. And I'm I'm glad, really really glad that it's working out. I don't think that we're you know we're ever going to compete with Chaosium, and I don't think that that's the intention. But no. We are reaching a stage now where you look at the competitive releases and it's getting harder and harder to tell which is Chaosium and which one is a Johnstown mm. competitive. You know, the, the, the game is really being upped. And I feel that people for the compendium are doing the things that maybe Chaosium can't do necessarily. Um, like alternative slightly alternative takes on glorantha right because chaosium has to be giving us the, the sort of baseline right and what johnstown compendium authors seem to be doing is well you know we're gonna do a little bit of a twist here you know we're gonna take things away from the baseline uh you know nick for example we're gonna have um a, a lunar emperor who looks like elvis that kind of thing i mean you know you, you can it just feels like 
don't necessarily have to stick to the script as much with with the JC. So it certainly really is a community effort, and you're getting a lot of people's different flavor and takes on Loranthra. It's it's working really well, and you know some things are are not going to be to particular people's tastes and and vice versa. But I think it's it's really spreading the net wide. Yeah, I would agree completely. Yeah. So you mentioned what's next. What is it that you've got in the pipeline, and what are you able to um, to feed us by way of teasers? Hopefully by Christmas. Uh, it's going at a pretty good pace here, and, and actually for the next term at my university, I told the, the dean that I was cutting back from uh, five days a week to three days a week so that I would have two days to, to write. Fantastic. The book that's coming is called The Company of the Dragon, and the idea here is that Six Seasons in Sarder, as I mentioned, is supposedly based on a, a third age poem by a, a man named Yusufis of Johnstown. And scholars have generally assumed that Six Seasons in Sarder is a work of fiction that he created, um, totally from his imagination. Well, it turns out that there was another writer in the Third Age. Uh, his name is Temerin the Younger, and he was a lunarized Sardarite, a historian, wrote a book on the war bands operating in the mountains of Sardar uh, just before the Hero Wars. And what I mean by that are who have sort of taken to the hills and are refusing to accept lunar rule. And they're sort of hiding out in the mountains and doing things like raiding caravans and all this. So anyway, the idea here is that he wrote a history of these. And one of the chapters in his book is called The Company of the Dragon. And mm -hmm. there are some resembling factors between The Company of the Dragon and Yusufus's characters in Six Seasons in Sardar. So that scholars, quote-unquote scholars, my imaginary scholars, are questioning whether or not there might have been more truth in Six Seasons in Sardar than people had believed. All of this is, really, is just sort of me setting up the conceit of, if you want to run the Company of the Dragon as a sequel to Six Seasons in Sardar, it is. But mm -hmm. it's also a standalone campaign. Whether or not there's a relationship to Six Seasons in Sardar is your decision to make. And that was set around the Dragon Rise, did you say? It, it, instead of, it picks up in 1620, right after Six Seasons in Sardar. Except this time it covers a five-year period and goes up to the, the Dragon Rise, and follows a particular warband called the Company of the Dragon, who will be your player characters, who are clanless and tribeless, and they're hiding in the mountains, they're working with other rebels, and indirectly working with Kalir, uh, in sort of a rebellion against the Lunars. But the main connection that they have to the characters and six seasons in Sardar is the, the company of the dragon is united by this uh, wider, this, this sort of clan or the sort of a warband spirit, a, a draconic spirit. And that's similar to something that happens in six seasons in Sardar. And this sort of ties them to Kalir's designs to wake up the brown dragon. So it's a five year saga this time, but it's completely different in that it will be based on episodes. Mm -hmm. um, instead of having, like Six Seasons in Sardar has six scenarios and then some episodes on the end, which are sort of short filler stories. Um, this time, it's going to be about 50 to 60 episodes, and you will assemble your own campaign. No two campaigns will be alike. Uh, 
Uh, it's not like you're going to run through this story, this story, and this story. It's more like here are 50 to 60 different stories. Run through as many of them as you like. Some are keyed to certain years. So, for example, some of the episodes have to take place during the Great Winter when people are, are suffering and starving in Sardar. Some take, have to take place a little bit earlier. But a lot of them you can, you can play at any time. And there are only a couple of them that are crucial to the campaign. Uh, for example, one where you will go into a sealed Dragon Newt city under Kalir Starbrow's orders or, or asking to cover the last piece of the dragon's soul that she needs to reawaken the brown dragon. So anyway, <laughs> have your five-year campaign and everybody's campaign will be a little bit different from everyone else's. But it sort of all comes together in this final episode, which leads into the Dragon Rise. Fantastic! Now, that sounds really very, very cool. And you, so you've committed yourself now to before Christmas. You heard it here first. I did that intentionally. I, I went into the, <laughs> the, the I went into the, the Facebook RuneQuest and Glorantha groups and, and posted the ad because it sort of puts a gun to my head and sort of says, "All right, get to the keyboard and write." You know, so. Um, yeah. It's how I motivate myself sometimes, going back to process. I find that if I put something out there, people are expecting it. It, it motivates me more than if I just sit back and eat, eat donuts and watch TV all day. So, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, have the community hold you accountable. That's, yeah, that's and you, and you know they will. You know oh, they yeah. will. <laughs> so. Fantastic. Okay, so the final question is, which runes or deity do you commit yourself to? to today who who do you uh, most relate to um i i think that this is going to have six seasons in sarder fans uh screaming and and carrying torches and and searching for my apartment in tokyo uh but i am at heart a lunar <laughs> and um seems to be very common in the in the community funnily enough yeah, uh, you know, in fact, all through high school, my long-term RuneQuest character was uh, Seven Mothers Priestess. Um, mm. Later, I just sort of turned around to, to telling stories from the from the Sardar point of view. So I'm going to go with the Seven Mothers. I'm going to go with um, Life, Moon, and, and Death, I think. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Andrew, thanks very much for talking to me. And, um, you know, you're very welcome on the on the inaugural episode. So we'll look forward to, um, what was the name of the, the second book again, sorry? Company of the Dragon? Company of the Dragon. Company of the Dragon, yeah. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, thanks again for, uh, for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Black Alex. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd love it if you were able to leave a review or rating on iTunes or your podcast software of choice. Or if you really liked it, you can support us via Patreon. You can contact us with questions and interview requests via our Facebook page, facebook.com slash groups slash The RuneQuest Project, or email us at therunequestproject at gmail.com.